Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. When it comes to the internet, who will make up the next huge wave of people to join? At Google's Next Billion Users project, they have a few ideas. This dedicated group of technologists is asking questions like, what are the needs of people living in rapidly growing global communities in Mexico City or Jakarta? And this team, largely thanks to dedicated UX researchers and their partners, is coming up with distinct new ways to serve these groups. Today, we're joined by Asif Baki, who leads the research and insights team for Next Billion Users at Google. With over 13 years of experience working at Google, Asif is well-suited for the challenge. He understands not only the -the on-the-ground differences that exist, but also the day-to-day obstacles in trying to bridge them. Today's episode is brought to you by dScout, a platform that makes qualitative research fun again. From recruitment, project design, to interviews, you'll get that feeling that got you interested in user-centered work in the first place. Capture remote insights that spark your next big aha moment. Check out dscout.com slash mm to get started. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, The Next Billion Users. I'm so excited to have Asif here with me today. And Asif, I thought we could start with just a brief introduction. Yeah. It's interesting when people ask you for an introduction, you don't know whether to go down the work path first or a personal path. Uh, I'll take personal. I was born and raised in Chicago, and I went to undergrad at the University of Illinois, Urbana, and after that, University of Michigan. I can get into the why and all that stuff later, I guess. I live in the East Bay, my wife and two boys, um, 10 and 5. And yeah, what else? I've been in the Bay Area since 2006. That's when I came over from Microsoft, and I used to live in Seattle uh, and came to work at Google. Yeah, you mentioned that you went and got a master's at University of Michigan. And I think one thing that's unique to me about your career path is that it's actually very direct. You know, so many UX researchers kind of do a number of different things and then find the field. And yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about how you found it so early and, you know, kind of what what got you interested in it. Yeah, it's actually crazy. I mean, I think a lot of the questions that you've asked previously to, to guests have been around how they found themselves into the field. And we all have our own sorted tales, right? For me, my path was kind of crazy. It was the alphabetical order of the course catalog. I got out of my undergrad and I was looking through the graduate school catalog because the job market at the time was kind of shot. And so I was like, okay, grad school it is. And a lot of my friends were getting jobs at Accenture. uh, And I was like, okay, that's the thing for me. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And how do I go about doing that? And they were getting degrees in management information systems. And so naturally looked through the catalog at DePaul University for Chicago, which was my number one choice at the time. And found right underneath management information systems, a management of science and information. Hmm. And I was like, hmm. And I read the description and it talked about all those things that I've always loved, but never really put together into one field. Psychology, computer science, design, and all these things that I was just fascinated with, but I never really felt like they could come together and do something with them. So as I started reading more, I discovered not only the program at DePaul, but also the one at University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And the staff there was so welcoming. I ended up applying and getting in and going there. Back to your question, though, about getting into the field and going directly there. Yeah, that was also kind of happenstance. I really... There were some people in, sometimes you find your skills by realizing what you're good at. And sometimes you can find your skills by realizing what you're not good at. Hmm. And so there were some people in my, in my graduating class for grad school that were just fantastic designers. And I looked at that and I was like, I'm good at design, 
but I think I'm really good at people and understanding people. And so I kind of focused in on the research portion of it, and I started applying to research internships. I ended up getting an internship at Microsoft, and I think it was just one of those things where you find your path and you realize that it's it's what you want to be doing and what's what, what you're good at. And it puts you in a situation where you are doing something that feels natural to you. And to me, that's what research ended up being. My very first mentor and uh, manager at Microsoft, Joey Benedict, he had this fantastic kind of people-first approach to his work, not only uh, when working with users, obviously, but also working with people at work. And so I think I just kind of fell into that, and I loved the idea of being myself and being natural at something and then going with it. Yeah. No, I love to hear that. I mean, I, I feel like what you're expressing is what everyone is kind of looking for when it comes to work, something that feels natural, that feels, yeah, that allows them to kind of get into that flow space and and just feel like they're the best version of themselves and that they're they're doing their best work. Absolutely. Yeah. And now you work at Next Billion Users, which is this amazing project at Google. How would you describe it to somebody who's, who's never uh, heard of NBU? That's a good question. I think a lot of people have heard about Google's mission statement. It's about delivering uh, information for people around the world, right? The idea of making, organizing the world's information, making it universally accessible. I think for me, if I can go back to the story on how to get there, and maybe that'll help to, to tell the story a bit more. For me, the universally accessible part is one that I had personal experience with. So in 2008, I moved to India for a year. I was asked to start interviewing candidates to build out a research team in India. Mm-hmm. And I decided, you know, there's no better way to go and learn about the academic sphere and how to hire people without going there and actually meeting candidates in person. And so one thing led to another and I convinced my manager to let me go. And at the time, I decided that it was going to be a year-long kind of uh, year-long Adventure. Adventure. (laughs) There you go. Thank you for filling in my words. So as I got there, they decided that they weren't going to build a team. Oh, no. And yeah, and this was after my wife having quit her job, bless her, uh, and we packed up and moved across the world. And so, you know, things change and you kind of have to roll with the punches. And so I decided uh, at that time just to kind of get into research and actually doing research for the products that were out there. It was then when I started seeing that Regardless of being number one in what we were doing. So Google search was number one in India at the time. It wasn't necessarily true that we were building the best experience for the Indian user. Mm -hmm. And so as I started watching people using search, I started realizing that there were different ways that people actually approached search and actually looking for information. So taking that and taking a step back, if you zoom out, Google has always been a global company. We've been wanting to, to address global user needs on a regular basis. But I think that you can look at our early products and really see that we focused in on the power user or the people who who were kind of like us. They were computer scientists. And that was fascinating and it was great. And we built products and tools that helped to address those needs. And those scaled because people who were coming online at the time were computer scientists. Now, the world has changed and technology is in everybody's hand. And not everybody is thinking the same way we do. Not everybody knows that Pizza 94043 is going to give you pizza restaurants in Mountain View, California Mm -hmm. uh, as as a search query. And so the next million users, I think, is the intention behind it is how do we make technology available and relevant and easily accessible to people around the world? And we're doing that by understanding people's needs and people all around the world. That's kind of a, a basic description. Yeah. Well, and, you know, even in the title Next Billion Users, I feel like there's this sense of, you know, a grand mission or optimism that you can even understand a billion users, right? Like it's so many people, it almost like makes your mind explode. And so I'm curious, you know, when you think of Next Billion Users, like how do you approach such a huge space? It's interesting because it's not just one billion users, it's next billion users, so yeah. it never ends. Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's always a billion, even if you like, yeah, even right. if you take care of the first billion. 
But I think the name is also a bit of a misnomer Mm -hmm. because it makes you focus on the number rather than what we're trying to get to. And I think the idea is really just understanding people. So I think I break it down into three specific parts. And this has been the way that we're approaching NBU, if we can shorten it now, because I will probably lose my breath saying next billion users again and again. Yeah. But NBU, the way we're approaching it is really a combination of many efforts that have preceded it at Google. There have been previous projects, emerging markets related, that we're now kind of learning from and building for. So um, we break it down into three parts. The first part is is core to how Google operates, and it's knowing your users, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool to have one major part of the pillar speaking directly to your practice of user experience research. Mm-hmm. So we do everything we possibly can. We base our decisions and what we work on, what we focus on, on actual users and understanding them. But recognizing fully that our intuition as it's currently trained is not what's needed in order to build for the next billion. The second part is about doing this not as just one team that is in the corner of Google working on something. But as happened in, you know, in the early 2000s, the mobile revolution of going from kind of a desktop-focused ecosystem to mobile-focused, we actually had to have everybody at Google take on this mission of being a mobile-focused team. And so everybody would be build mobile products. In the same way, it's not just the NBU team building for the next billion users. It's us working with teams across Google and evangelizing the need for this across Google. And lastly, the third pillar is about building products that actually exemplify this. And so our team specifically does build products that we hope are exemplars. And we kind of tackle those big issues that we hope we can understand and then also help other product areas at Google understand in order to then better serve their users. Yeah, I feel like there's so much. There's so much in what you just said that I want to dig into. I think in particular, the second area that you mentioned, you know, of your role as evangelist, how do you do that? I think that that's something that is so widely applicable, but also something that's really difficult to do well because, you know, you're working with PMs and they have just more than they can ever do on their plate. You're working with designers and again, they have more than they can ever do on their plate. And then you're asking them. And I think there's so many different versions of this, right? There's, hey, let's be more international. Hey, let's be more accessible. Like, hey, let's be X, Y, Z. And so, yeah, I would love to hear how you've seen your team effectively evangelize and get people on board. Yeah, no, there is. Evangelism is is not easy and it really is a team thing. Um, and I, I can't restrict this only to user experience research. It is so much more. And I think one of the things that this, this role has taught me has been to expand your viewpoint as to who your partners are in crime. Mm-hmm. And so early on in the days of NBU, I think that this was a strategic effort from both our leadership, so we, our VP, Cesar Sengupta, partnered up with business operations at the company. Hmm. And Julia Sunderland, who is our, our business operations associate. Now, looking at that, it's just it was kind of this powerhouse of people that understood the mission and what we wanted to get done, but also then build out a company-wide strategy to make it important. And that was honestly the, the thing that opened the door to then so much more that can happen later. So Julia put together kind of a staff of people from across the company representing the different product areas and made it their responsibility to come and listen and to come and understand. It didn't mean that it took care of the responsibility, our responsibility to actually make the story compelling, but it did open the door to actually having people come to the table. So then making the story compelling, that's where things get kind of fun. We had to do a lot of research. And this is where secondary research cannot be you know, understated. You have to kind of really see the, the benefit in this. And so there's so much that the world knows. There's so many reports that go out on a regular basis about the growth of mobile phones, the way that peop- the populations are growing in different places, access to technology, access to the internet. And we took all of those and we put together a story that was extremely compelling that showed not only the user side of things, but also the business side. That if we focus on a specific group of countries and a specific type of user, that we will see our business grow and that this is the way that the world is changing. 
It's interesting. As researchers, oftentimes we want to conquer the world. We see all the problems and we want to fix all of them at the same time. The wisdom of our leadership basically said, let's not do that. <laughs> let's, let's, let's bite off a little bit. Let's chew that and then let's kind of move on from there. And so while we designated a few countries to focus on, India, Indonesia, Brazil, and so on, we also then decided to focus on the young urban professional and looking at how to build for that set, that audience. And we helped to make our story that we were pitching to all of these different product areas compelling by making it extremely clear as to how to target that specific audience. We went back to previous research that had been done on search, on uh, access, which was kind of a broad-ranging community of res uh, research that was about access to the internet, uh, and many other product areas around Google. And we pulled out the core values and the core ideas and the core challenges that users faced. And we made it extremely easily consumable. So we talked about, we presented this at Google I.O. called the three C's, connectivity, cost, and compatibility. And again, we tried to make things catchy, but then also easily digestible and easily actionable. And as we started presenting this to product area leads, it became more clear what they could do. And so we started slowly helping people to come on board with wanting to solve this problem and seeing the benefit in solving it. Even when you are in field, you can't be with your participants 24-7. But there's one thing that can be. They're smartphones. Gscout is a remote research platform leveraging just that, which saves you from missing the moments that matter. Set up a diary study and see your participants' daily lives in context. Use Dscout Live and conduct interviews on a platform actually built for research. Bring your own participants on board or handpick from their 100,000-person scout pool. To start connecting with more people more impactfully, head to dscout.com mm. You know, I, I love hearing that you were really leaning on secondary research because I think sometimes that researchers overlook the value of secondary research because they're so in the moment with their product teams and their product teams aren't asking them necessarily to do like a lit review. Absolutely. Yeah. So I love, to, I love hearing that. I guess I'm also curious, you know, when you're talking about putting together this really clear, concise presentation and then effectively road showing it with these different product teams, yeah. how much time, how many researchers were involved in putting together this initial deck that you then spent so much time evangelizing. I think part of me is like, at what point would I feel like, oh yeah, this is ready for me to spend months just sharing it with people? So it was kind of my full-time job, but it was always, it was part-time as well, because I was working on, with a team of researchers that were focused on search and maps at the time, mm -hmm. and looking at actually building out the international story for search and maps. From that, those insights and from insights gathered from colleagues like Nitya Sambasivan uh, and others who are in the industry, we basically pulled together this 3C format and were able to ev evangelize it. A lot of it was honestly volunteerism from people around the company, people who had experienced emerging markets research in the past and wanted to make sure that the company moved forward. So I, I can't put a number on it, but I think it was a lot of people's hard work and a little bit of luck that we got in the right form, at the right place and right time. And we had immense support from our product management um, and business operations colleagues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it sounds just like a wonderful example of research at its best, because I think so often the key to research is getting other people really excited about it. And it can be really difficult, especially, you know, depending on how zoomed in you are on a specific feature versus, you know, sometimes people get so broad that I think it also becomes less compelling. So yeah, it sounds like a project where you kind of found that like perfect, the just right, like 
I'm thinking of Goldilocks, the yeah. just right porridge. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. I feel that it was also that the again getting back to the fact that it wasn't just the the user story because oftentimes we find ourselves only advocating for the user. But it was very much the business story. It was very much the market story, saying that if you're going to build for NBU, you're going to be building for everyone, right? And that these ideas and this kind of strategy will scale. And it's something that we believed in strongly because the data showed, the numbers showed that this is this was the truth. And we've seen it come to fruition uh, over time. Mm-hmm. If I can pause there for a second, can I jump back to secondary research? Yeah, of course. So I, I want to just go back to that point because I think the point you made that oftentimes we overlook secondary research is really important, especially at the start of a movement. And I would call NBU a movement to the risk of being too provocative, I guess. But at the beginning of the movement, it's really important to make sure that you make data gathering as easy as possible. One of the difficult things we had was that a lot of the teams around Google wanted to learn about the next million users, and oftentimes we ask the same questions. And so researchers, when they get excited, we go out and we learn. But especially with a company the size of Google, it's hard to coordinate between all of that. And so what we did was we actually built out a team that we call our research analyst team that does secondary research on a regular basis and does it for teams around Google. And so again, at the at the cost of our organization, like our organization actually paying for it, we decided to put together a team that would, on a regular basis, answer any questions to make sure that people have can take advantage of the type of information that's at their fingertips already before asking new questions. So let's say that you wanted to go learn about small businesses in India. Well, there have been a number of studies both inside and outside of Google that have already done that type of work and learned a fair amount. So maybe that you come up with a list of 10 questions and it may be that five of them are already answered. Let's go find out about those five already. Let's make sure that you take that into account and then you might come back with seven new questions. But at least you've experienced that delta and you've kind of benefited from that additional insight that you can go and grab. And so we felt like that was actually a big step towards giving people a foundation and giving them the tools necessary to succeed when you're asking them to take on such a large task. Yeah, this is making me think of a conversation that I had earlier in this year with Kate Towsey, who's just a huge advocate for research operations currently at Atlassian because she was talking to me a lot about this idea of a digital librarian. Yes. And it was kind of like the first time that I had heard of that idea. And when you are speaking about research analysts, it kind of rings Yes, absolutely. rings true. And I feel like it's something, I think that there are trends and waves in our field, just like any field. And right now it feels like the next big idea or the next big thing for teams to try is exactly what you're talking about because we're just, it feels like we're constantly reinventing the wheel sometimes. Absolutely. And I can say for a fact, without a doubt, that that's been a huge pillar for us and enabled so many teams around Google to not feel like they're starting over, starting from scratch. Yeah. Well, and something else that you said that was really interesting to me was that it kind of started with a partnership with BizOps. Yeah. And, you know, I think especially working at a larger company, you see that there are all of these other research functions. There's like BizOps, there's market research, there's PMM, who is product marketing managers who are also doing their own projects. And so I'm curious how it works at NBU. Like, is it a insights team? Is it just partnerships with these different organizations? Like, how do you, how do you bring all of these things together? Is it just through the research analysts? It's a great question. There's so there's the formal side of it in terms of the organization, and then there's the informal side. I'll do the formal first and yeah. then come back to the informal. On the formal side, uh, yes, there is a research and insights team. We are a group of researchers, program managers, designers that work on understanding the user and bringing that back to product teams. The partnerships have kind of been naturally engendered over time. It's, it's basically that I guess when you start an organization from scratch where one of your, your core pillars is know the user, then it becomes everybody's responsibility to know the user. So product managers, engineers, business operations, 
almost everybody who's on our team has gone and visited and actually understood uh, a user firsthand. And I think that's been a huge part of the culture of our organization where informally it's everybody is a researcher. And when you join the team, there's almost a avoid if you haven't gone and actually experienced it firsthand because you know generally that the intuition that you've kind of grown up with is not the one that's going to help you to build the product that you need to build in order to satisfy the needs of our users. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for us, naturally speaking, the team itself is a team of researchers that also function as evangelists and kind of guides for other people who are also researchers, but they just kind of perform other functions as well. Our PM team is fantastic, and we have so many engineering leads who are just committed to, to knowing the user. Actually, early on when I joined the organization, and I, I joined as one researcher, and um, I had one headcount to fill, and I brought over Lamar Alayubi, who is a program manager for my old te team, as the first kind of employee on our team. He and I together, banded together, we were kind of a dynamic duo, I guess, in building out the, uh, the research team for NBU. So at that time, when we didn't have much in terms of staff, one of the engineering leads really wanted to learn about his, you know, the user base, and he happened to be going to India. Uh, for some work. And so he said, Asif, can you help me to just come up with a script, something that I can do? And I sat down with him, came up with a script, and we kind of walked through it together about the ways to ask leading questions, the ways not to ask leading questions, et cetera. And he went to India himself and did a lot of the research and met with a number of research. So Amit, uh, the, the engineering lead, became our kind of pseudo-researcher on the ground. And since then, and since he's seen that impact, he's become one of the biggest evangelists for research within our team. Now, every new engineer that joins his team is naturally, in, you know, kind of given this insight that you need to go and actually understand your user base. So I think part of it, to, to answer your question around how do you, it, what does the organization look like? I think a lot of it is the strict, obviously, hiring researchers to then cover the research for products, but then making sure that everybody has a culture of research and wanting to be a user researcher. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting to hear that you, I feel like at some organizations, researchers are very boundaried in terms of who does research and who's a researcher. So it's cool to hear that, you know, you had this relationship and allowed this other person to go off, even though they weren't, you know, quote unquote, a researcher. And I wonder if that's still something that you do. And if so, how do you keep, like, how do you keep the quality up? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference between research for the sake of data collection and research for the sake of intuition building. Mm. So quality is important either way. Um, and there's, and research is almost always directed by a researcher and somebody who is kind of organizing the research. But intuition building is a different thing in some ways. The job for our researchers is not only to do research in order to collect data, but also to create the environment in which our team can learn and grow. And so when I talk about building with intuition, there's also a matter of breaking intuition. And so there's like almost this arc that our teammates will go through where they first have to recognize that the intuition that they're coming to the table with is not sufficient to build the product or build an experience or answer the questions and the problems that we've set out to answer. Once they've realized that, then they can make room for new knowledge and the researcher will help them gain that knowledge. And then they have to kind of trust the knowledge, internalize it, and that forms a new intuition. Yeah, no, I love the idea. Like I, I've actually never heard someone use that language of like intuition building and intuition breaking. So I really love that language. And I also think that it's an important, like I think by dividing those two things, it kind of frees up a lot of like mental angst, right? Because you don't have to be like, oh, this person is a UX researcher now because they've done UX research. It's like, no, you're allowing this person to build up their own intuition, which so often is what makes someone really valuable on a UX research team or like, a, you know, a partner. So I, I love the idea of separating those two things because I, 
Yeah, I just feel like it makes it so that researchers don't have to be so, I don't know, I don't have a better word, uptight about like who does research and who's allowed to do research. I think I have to thank our VP for that, honestly, because so Caesar, when I first joined, uh, he said to me that intuition builds great products. Mm-hmm. And it left me kind of, I, I was just wondering, I'm like, where, where's my role? Because isn't it research that builds great products? Mm-hmm. And then after a while, I kind of thought about it and I said, well, research built intuition. And that's the answer is that it's not that research doesn't have a place in that, you know, when, when a product manager has great intuition, great for them and great for the users, because then as long as their intuition is in tune with what the users need, then it helps to build the right product. But if that intuition is out of line, it can lead you into some really dark places that doesn't, doesn't solve the problem that we actually need to solve in order to give people the best experience. And so I feel like that became then the mandate of the research team was to build intuition. Mm-hmm. And you do that by any means necessary. Yeah. And you you said by any means necessary. And I'm wondering, like, what are the, are the, are the means for, you know, researching next billion users? How are they different? How are they the same? It's a great question. And one that I often, I wish I had more time to, to think about. But it's fantastic. The people on my team, many of the researchers are so committed to methodology innovation to thinking about new ways to attack and actually um, and to get more insights. I'm just, I, I admire them on a regular basis. So let, let's take surveys, for example. Surveys, if you're looking to reach the next billion and you're looking to understand their needs through a survey methodology, some of our survey tools as they're built today are built with panels. And so you have these panels that have been created that are then used in order to field the survey and to get the feedback. Those panels sometimes, at least in our case, that we've built internally are built on emails that have been sent out to people with desktop computers that have long surveys that they fill out and take the time to click radio buttons and tell people about themselves, oftentimes in English. So many of those things, if you knock them down one by one, they just don't fit. Yeah. And so we have to think of new ways to create surveys or to even get the same type of intuition and the same type of scalable insights that a survey can give you. And so rethinking the survey methodology is one of the things that my team is doing right now. How do you go about scaling that? And how do you go about working through local people? You know, the feed on the street operations are known very well across many industries and many um, different types of software companies. I think that there's so much to be learned and so much more innovation that you can bring then to research to say, how do we use existing innovations to change the way that research operates? So that's one example of kind of a research methodology innovation. Another might be that we oftentimes will, even as people who are learning, so one of the things that we're doing with NBU is we're actually building out teams around the world. And that is absolutely critical to building the right products is by having researchers and people closer to the people that you're building for. That has been extremely important for us. And so how do we go about taking people and when you're building the environment of learning, recognizing that Google offices, and they're amazing because they look great and they help you feel like you're at home no matter where you are in the world or five-star hotels are getting in the way of us truly internalizing the, the needs and the environment of the users. And so how do we go around that? So those are other things that, you know, they're not traditional methodologies. I'm not talking to you about a new way of doing qualitative interviews, but it really is about building the right environment for learning. Um, and that's other stuff that we're working on within the team as well. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting to hear you say, you know, even just like feet on the street, because there are so many teams that are trying to do international research. But you're right. Like we, just as you're saying it, I'm like, oh yeah, that is true. Like we're using these old methods to try to create new innovations. And it really is 
backwards. So when you say, for example, feet on the street, do you mean actually having individuals go and like say a survey out loud to someone and write down their their responses? Or what does that what does that look like? How do you how do you do that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's that's one of the ways that's possible. Again, I think a lot of it's just about exploring existing technologies and reapplying them in different ways. Mm. Can I use a slightly different example in order to illustrate something similar. Yeah, totally. I'll answer your question, but I'll come back to it. Yeah. So for example, within our company, we've got a team of contract-oriented, legal-oriented people that really know the ins and outs of working with vendors. Mm -hmm. We've never used their skills extensively and applied them towards research, but we found that the problem that research was needing to solve in order to become truly international was one of scale and one of working with vendors. And so looking around your organization for skills that are that may not be the right context, they might not be user experience related, but they're absolutely the right skill in order to solve the problem that you have at hand. That's when new partnerships are forged and when they're absolutely critical. And so working with um, the organization that we call GTEC, in order to then extend the, the reach of vendors throughout the company, that has been the most amazing tool that has then opened up access to vendors to all of researchers and made international research so much more possible. So Lamar, who I'd mentioned earlier, took this process that was historically took us six weeks to sign up a vendor, to have them security approved, to get on the ground and do international research, down to five days where you can work with a wow. vendor. Yeah, you can work with a vendor, get them, get signed up with them and actually have uh, a study then commissioned fairly quickly and easily. And that becomes a service then that's available to all of Google. So looking at that type of process and saying, okay, well, how do you go about then making, I guess where I was going with that for the surveys was essentially that it's not just about doing the same thing we're doing in more manual ways or like deploying a fleet of, of researchers to go and do studies in person. It's about looking at technologies kind of with a tilted head and saying, how can I reapply technologies that may not even be related to research in new ways that'll then enable research to grow. Mm -hmm. And program management is one of the kind of areas that I think the skills that are there, it's just so critical to see those operational skills in, in a new light. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like this is one of the main challenges that you have. Right. Is that these old these this old guard doesn't work. And but I also think, I mean, we're so obsessed in tech with coming up with something new and innovating, you know, in some brand new way or whatever. But then it seems like we're always talking to people in Silicon Valley or New York or, you know, these same places that we've been or we're doing things in the same way that we've done them. So, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that your researchers on your team are really interested in methodology innovation because I don't think I've actually, yeah, I don't think I've actually heard someone like a researcher say something I'm into is methodology innovation. You know, usually researchers are like, usually I do qualitative one-on-one -on -one interviews and just have like a list of the the methods that they use. So, I mean, to be honest, I guess in my one-on-ones with my team, they don't call it that. Yeah. But, you know, they're so creative in the way that they come up with solutions for the problems that they face. And they're tasked with the responsibility of understanding somebody who is across the world or sometimes next door because we have a team in Bangalore. But the idea is that they do need to come up with unique ways to understand these uh, people. And that's what they're doing. They're innovating a methodology. Yeah. You know, and we've been talking a lot about how you define NBU and the methods that you're using and kind of the way that your team is thinking about it. I would love to hear more about the way that you've seen this work actually impact the team, the whole team at Google. I mean, I think you talked about this a little bit with three C's and, you know, that project, but in general, you know, over, you've been at Google now for 13 years, a little bit over. So yeah, I'm wondering like, how have you seen, how have you seen the products that you're putting out change or? It's hard to 
summarize over 13 years, I guess. But there is, I mean, it's a world of a difference now in terms of the recognition that building for the world is important. It's not that we didn't see this before, but I think that the the means to it and the necessity for it are so much more clear to us now, both because of what I mentioned earlier in terms of building out the business case, but also these anecdotes, these stories of users and how we've been able to impact their lives are fantastic. Our payments um, efforts, so if I think about it purely from a product perspective, because one of the things I'd mentioned to you was that building for the next million users means building for the world, or when you build for them, you can build for the world. There are two products that I'll mention that we've seen this already with. So our payments product, Google Pay. The current consumer interface for India is one that is scaling globally. And it's absolutely amazing that the product we actually built was built originally for the Indian market alone. We've seen the uptake of that specific interface for the entire world. And so something that started out as a very India-specific product is now being taken globally and launched globally. Looking at it from more of a user needs perspective to recognize how different we're not, we started studying in India the ability for people to enjoy their time on their devices more. Device productivity is a very dry word, and so I won't use that, but it's, it's really that people, we wanted to see how can people engage with their devices more and actually feel as if they're enjoying themselves more. And we found that people were oftentimes sharing videos, sharing applications to be able to utilize their devices without connectivity. We also found that they were struggling regularly with storage problems on their devices and their devices were overflowing uh, and just not able to really enjoy the benefit of their devices because they had to constantly clear out photos that they loved or they had to delete applications because they didn't have enough room on their device to download the next application. Um, When we found this, we created an application called Files by Google. When we launched this, to our surprise, although again, it was built from insights purely from India and Brazil, I think some of the first countries that it took off in and that we're seeing really strong growth in were Italy, India, but also America. And so now it's gone global. And lo and behold, it's the highest rated Google app on the Play Store. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, it's amazing to see that within a span of two years, it's gone over 100 million monthly active users. So even from a business perspective and all those traditional stats that we use to evaluate the, the value of a product... Absolutely amazing. And even more heartwarming to look at it, that people just, we hear stories on a regular basis of people really feeling like they're connected more with their devices and they're able to utilize their devices more freely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, hearing that, it makes me think of, you know, for example, IDEO's design thinking methodology. They always recommend kind of going and finding the outliers and having conversations with those people. And I think a lot of people do try to do that. But as you were saying that, I realize a lot of times we're trying to find outliers still within this group of, this in-group, right? This group of, uh, you know, oftentimes like North American people who have a desktop computer who can answer a survey and so on and so forth. And so it is really interesting to think that like, if we are trying to authentically apply this methodology that I think so many of us, or this mindset that so many of us have in our minds, we really do have to go to places that are outliers, not just like the individuals that we can reach within, you know, this, our arm's length, the methods that we currently have. That's interesting. I think I'd agree with you, but I'd also use slightly different wording. You know, maybe we're the outliers. Hmm. And the world, honestly, is trends from small business owners in Indonesia can be seen in Southern California today, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea that a product that is visual in nature like Instagram is taking off with small business owners in Indonesia, it's because it speaks the language that needs to be spoken in order to appeal to this user population. So when looking at those needs, I feel like by studying that audience, they may more acutely show us the needs that the user audience has. And by addressing those acute needs, we can then scale the products more efficiently across the world. Yeah. But really, I, I see that the trends from NBU are the ones that are just 
proliferating everywhere. And it's, I mean, it's not only when it comes to consumption, it's also when it comes to creation. It's also when it comes to just so many different aspects of the user experience. Yeah. No, I think that reframing is really appropriate. Well, and I, you know, you are at Google, you have a lot of resources, which is amazing and allows you to just do such high quality work. I wonder what you would recommend for somebody who is at a company that, you know, maybe large, maybe small, but is kind of, you know, trying to start to develop this intuition around MBU. Like how does somebody, how does somebody start to research the next billion users? Well, don't take a plane away from me. Like I feel like <laughs> I, I hope that traveling is an option. Um, I know that oftentimes people are resource constrained, budget constrained. There's obviously nothing like going in and visiting people and visiting countries that you want to build for, building when you're close to them. I, I would recommend that you uh, you do, if you can, find a, a place or an area and look at your current product logs and see where there may be extended usage. You might be surprised to see that there's usage in places that you never imagined. But when you do, go in and study and understand why that why that's the case go with an open mind. I would say take some colleagues with you if you can, because you look at a problem from a certain perspective as a user experience researcher or designer, but your teammates may see a completely different thing that would then crack open exactly why something is being successful, why it's not. And then allow yourself the time to be there. You're not going to get to know all of India in a day. You won't get to know a city in a day. You won't get to know uh, anything in a day. I would say move, you know, stay for a week, two weeks. You still won't get to learn everything, but at least you'll give yourself the time to really engage. I think as researchers, we're naturally curious. And a lot of us, you know, if you ask a researcher, I think often, how do you get to know a city? It's not going to be by visiting the tourist sites. It really is by going to the local marketplaces, shopping, doing things that every day people who are living in the, in the country will do and the city will do. So allow yourself the room to kind of experience those things, pay with local means, travel with local means, et cetera. These are ex- extremely helpful. If you do take my plane away from me <laughs> and you say that travel is not an option, there's so much great literature out there. There's so much, so many great videos. YouTube has just, you know, reels and reels of videos that you can, can, can watch and understand about local dynamics. Talk to local experts, right? We talked about secondary research earlier. Don't, don't look that gift horse in the mouth. Is that the phrase? I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll use it anyway. <laughs> Hopefully it's applicable. But yeah, so the, um, it's such a great kind of gift to have secondary research and being able to read what other people have, have learned and understood. And then slowly start drafting your own questions. What are you curious about? And go from there. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's such helpful advice. I, I also, you know, I also wonder what you are imagining for your team. Like, what are you imagining next? Like, where is like the, the space that you're really excited about as somebody who's already kind of been exposed to so much? I would say that we, we definitely want to continue to deliver on great product experiences. We're continuing to learn and continuing to find places where we can add value. I want my team to be thematic leaders, um, people who understand a theme in depth and are able to kind of give not only internally to Google, but also externally to the broader community, our insights about what we're learning for this user population. To give you an example, we have a team that's focused on thematic horizontal issues. We're looking at gender equity online. So we published a, a paper last year looking at gender gaps on the internet and looking at how we might be able to understand women's path to getting online. And so knowing that the majority of people coming online over the next two years in India are going to be women, how do you then understand their path and be able to deliver better for that? 
And so naturally, I want people who who have done that research and built that those insights to then become subject matter experts for the industry. They've built out a vocabulary that they can then help share so people can have more intelligent conversations and come to conclusions about how to help and impact this audience. Now, we look at small businesses. We look at connectivity. We look at motivation. We look at intention. We look at payments. There's so many different areas where we can become subject matter experts for what it looks like for the next million users. I would love for my team to be those subject matter experts. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's so exciting. I think it's something that as an industry, we desperately need because there are so many people working on the same problems. And I'm always thinking about this as I, you know, meet researchers here and abroad and they start to tell me what they're working on. And I think of three other researchers that I know who are working on, you know, design systems or payments or marketing or whatever it is. So I love the idea of figuring out better ways to yeah, elevate certain researchers and share that knowledge that we're, we're gathering. I'm hoping so. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, Asif, thank you so much for making the time to share a little bit about your experience with MBU. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for this service to the community. Honestly, I hope that um, people are benefiting from it. Again, seeing an applied lens towards all the work that people are doing, I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group. If you aren't already a member, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, Aaron Schroeder, who edited this episode, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.